Welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. And right here, the revolution is in full swing. It's really so exciting. Like three years ago, I should count up all the shows when we first started this theme music and we really began this adventure together. I felt like we needed to start the revolution, the, the uh, you know, pointing the country in a different direction, health in a different direction, not controlled by pharma um, and, you know, so many things. And it, it's so amazing. And I'm so happy that we are here. We're not just at the beginnings where I mean, we're kind of deep into this revolution. Um so what I'm really excited today about our guests, because what it's going to be really unusual how we approach this revolution. So before I explain a little bit more, I'm going to bring on co-host Dr. Javier Figueroa and welcome him. him. Hi. Hello, Bernadette. How are you? I'm good. We've missed you here on the show. I hope all is well in your world. Aside from the, you know, fencing accident, doing quite well. Yeah. <laughs> So for those of you just listening, um, he does have a little bandage there uh, covering the spot. We're going to go with fencing accident. Okay. Well, that's good. I'll go with that too. Yeah. (laughs) You are so funny. Um, But um, Javier, uh, one thing we've never really touched on much, although um, at Christmas time, I have had on some musicians and it's been wonderful to get uplifting music, talk about what's going on thematically in the world and tie it to the beautiful music they performed. But we've never brought on writers to look at the realm of fiction, the realm of artistic expression uh, as a means of understanding the world today. Um, of communicating things that might be being censored and suppressed, right? So um, in the first hour, we've got a contemporary writer. In our second hour, a contemporary person, but he's going to be reviewing historical works that really lighten because he is now educator at IPAC-EDU with a course that's coming up that people are going to want to sign up for. So how about we go ahead and, and um, oh, did I say The Views Expressed yet? Anybody here? No, not that? yet. All right. The Views Expressed by us on this show today are not necessarily those of our wonderful free speech platform, KKNW or CHDTV. Um, we're not doctors. We're not attorneys. Uh, no advice given here. Just information to help you all make informed decisions in your life. So with us today is Garth Stein. And... A lot of people have heard that name. Uh, for those of you new to the name, um, first of all, let's just say, hey, Garth. <laughs> hey, Garth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, Hello, everyone. <laughs> yeah. So um, Garth goes back and forth between a stand-up comic and being a highly successful <laughs> author. Um, anyway. I, um, I'm not sure which one pays worse, but. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I've known Garth now for years. I had the the pleasure and honor of working, of meeting him through the Seattle Seven Writers out in, in Washington State, which was for a time, in its own time, a wonderful organization collection of writers in the Pacific Northwest that um, I got to meet amazing people. And we did good work. 
funding literacy projects and such, you know? Um, and you introduced me though, once I started talking to you and you look at me like your eyes lit up and you said, you got to be my wife. That's right. So his wife was one of my dearest friends and we're on this journey together, you know? Um, yeah. Yes, that was a. There was something that in the air. This was back in the day when we thought that the uh, the crust was firm of the earth, and we could do all sorts of good deeds before we realized that at any moment the crust could crack and molten lava could just start yeah. oozing out all over the place and really challenge our our kind of worldview. So, what you're giving some hints as to your current novel. Uh, graphic <laughs> yeah. novels, yes. So it, it, it's on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, this. This is the dark side of Garstein. It's somebody, it's it's new. And I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna give a little heads up that when we do get to your current work, I'm gonna start with your your history and former work, and we're gonna get to your current work because um your current work is very adult themed. Um, and there's some adult language in there. So I do say to parents of you know, teens and young adults, review it yourself and see if you feel Absolutely. your child is mature enough, right? Absolutely. To, to deal with, to grapple with what's in these um, graphic novels. It's, but, we, we can't forget that. I just got to say that we can't forget that that parents, it's an obligation and it's a responsibility to take an, av an active part in your children's education. And that means familiarizing yourself with what they are learning with other brilliant teachers and, you know, people who can share, share things with them. And you should know what books they're reading and yes. about so that things aren't happening, you know, with on, on the crust and there's lava underneath. So, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so I think um, before we get to your titles, Garth, could you give us a little history of your background and, and what brought sure. you to be a writer? Sure. I uh, grew up in Seattle. I lived in New York for a long, long time, met my wonderful wife, Drella, there. And we have three lovely uh children, two of whom are adult and on their own, and one who were getting ready to launch. And uh, I made documentary films for a long time and then ended up going into writing and finding really my groove in, um, in the written word, which kind of apexed with The Art of Racing in the Rain, which became like this huge international bestseller and all that kind of stuff. And so- yeah. You know, what do you do after The Art of Racing in the Rain has always been sort of a challenge I've been faced with. I wrote another novel called A Sudden Light about spirituality and and uh, chopping down trees in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. Yes, it might have been a little conflicted. And then uh, <laughs> I was working on this idea that I had for this world of in the future of, you know, mutant goat people living with the homeless population in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And, and I wrote a whole novel of it and I gave it to Drella, my wife, and she read it and she looked at me and she said, no, no <laughs> this is, this is not your next, anyway, no, this is just not your next book. You have to write something else. And so that's when I said, well, what can I, how can I tell this story in a way that will, she'll say yes. And that became a graphic novel, but that's yeah. where I got to. That's how the cloven came to be. Yeah. And I love that you you mentioned Drella and how you presented this idea to her, this this full work. And I even took notes um, beforehand because I wanted to make sure I bring this up, because as as a writer myself, I know what it's like that every writer needs that certain someone mm -hmm. who knows your ability and knows your intent and knows your potential and they're willing to be critical without criticizing mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So they don't destroy your ego, your confidence, but will tell you what they believe is the truth to guide you. You know, you're, he's being, she's not now. so worried about destroying my ego, by the way, Jarrell <laughs> is totally willing to destroy well, my ego and confidence. Yeah, you've been married like forever. So, I, I, but and you know what I mean though? It's, <laughs> it, it's a difficult relationship it to is. be in. There, there has to be that trust because they're going to go in there and you think this is great. And, and she's going to say, no, I know what you're trying to say and you haven't done it yet. You got to keep yeah. working. And that, and I so respect her and your relationship. And then the fact that you're still married. Um. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I've always been a bit of a masochist, I guess. And uh, <laughs> the, I, I, everything you say is absolutely true, Bernadette, of course. I mean, the, you, you need a writer, any creative person needs to have a, a, a confidant. And, a confidant. And, who you can expose, you know, you got to, yeah. cause you got to get naked. I mean, yeah. you got, you just like, you know, regurgitated your entire soul onto some pieces of paper and you go want someone to read that. And what you really, you know, you're saying, do you still love me? Yeah. yeah. You know, but what the worst thing that could happen would be, you know, I mean, it happened in the play up the down staircase. In fact, that I was in, in high school where, the teenage girl writes a love letter to the teacher and he doesn't know how to handle it. So he corrects it. Oh and dear. It, which is just not the right thing to do. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, so, you know, it's a, it is a difficult relationship. It's a, there's, it's a very intimate relationship, writing a book and reading a book. Yeah. So you need to have somebody who can sort of protect you in that. And Drella's always been my protector. Yeah. She doesn't wear boxing gloves. So sometimes I take bruises, but you know, that's, that's part of the whole thing. <laughs> That's the masochist part. Yeah. And um, I think as a writer, one of the hardest things to do is develop your craft enough and find that certain someone so that that, that inner relationship and that getting that feedback doesn't crush you, but does help push you to be your best self, your best writer. And I know a lot of people who are great writers, but learning how to accept constructive criticism or be guided, it, it destroyed them. They could not handle it. And there's some teachers I know who have destroyed great writers in high school yeah. because they would correct. And, and it, it is a, a so I, I'm just so glad that you have this relationship because you've brought these amazing works to the public. And well, thank and writing, especially the way you do it. I mean, I do value entertainment fiction that just takes you away. I'm tired of thinking. I just want to be entertained, mm -hmm. fall in mm -hmm. love or what, right? There's great value, I think, of that in that mm -hmm. because we all need that time away from the crazy world. But then there's also the, the sort of writing that you do that both entertains, but there's always something inside that the reader resonates with Mm -hmm. that if, if it's something they've experienced in their life, it makes them feel understood. Mm -hmm. And they go on this journey. And when they come through with it, they're somewhat changed through the experience. And, and I appreciate that about you as an artist, as a writer, especially in these crazy times. Well, well, thank you. I mean, I, I try to write good, entertaining stories that people will like to read. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully maybe we can open some conversations and crack the doors a little bit. And like, yeah. and, and I, I think it's important to be provocative. I mean, that's straight out of our friend, George Orwell, who I know you're going to talk about next hour, you know, in his, <laughs> in his manifesto on why I write, he says, if I'm not poking someone in the eye, I'm doing it wrong. Because mm -hmm. what our job is, is to sure. It, our job is to, as a writer is to sort of, plumb our subconscious depths for something yeah. that we think has 
merit for the rest of the world, for whoever's mm -hmm. going to read our work. And if it if you do it right and you get down to the right piece of subconscious puzzle, other people access it as well. I mean, it, mm. it, it tends to be kind of the Jungian construction of the, you know, the, the unconscious, the, the river of unconscious that we are, the collective unconscious that we all share. Mm -hmm. And if we can get down and tap into that, well, then everybody else immediately feels that as well. And that's where that empathy, that's where that resonance yes. happens. Yeah. But I think it's important also to not just like, I mean, my job isn't just to do, you know, be a drill bit guy and I drill down and then I let the oil come flying out. I got to like do something, you, know, you got to process it. And so what I can bring out, I try to put through my filters and make into a story that maybe will push you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't have to, if you want to read The Art of Racing in the Rain as a dog book, you know, rock on man, buy extra copies for your friends, I say. <laughs> but if you want to go a little bit deeper, you know, there are themes in there that you could really explore on a pretty... Mm -hmm you know, philosophical level that I think, you know, could be life-changing if one wanted it to be. And so I would like to make that available to people without the presumption of this is the reading you should have and it should only be this. And if you read it any other way, yes. you're wrong. That's yeah. not the way it is. I put something out, a reader takes something in and puts it through their filter system right. and says, I like it, I don't like it, I resonate with it or that. So that idea of um, of art as um, an agent of of provocation in our society, I think, mm -hmm. is something that's really important and mm -hmm. uh, and something that we need to cultivate. And yeah, and the budgets in the schools aren't letting us do that. No, but. and when when it's presented the way you do it and the way really good literature through the history has done it, because the story itself can carry you forward. I, I know I've read, like, I recently read, reread the books we'll talk about in the next hour, 1984 and Brave New World. I was in high school the first time I read them. What I got out of them now yeah. versus what I did, how old am I? 50 years ago? You know, 45 years ago? Ah, tell everybody. I just turned 60. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> but um, yeah, it like, you know, so the story was always entertaining and there were certain things I could identify with, but it right. is almost like really good works you reread every 10 years and you're going to get something out of it. And if you're not getting something different out of it, it's like maybe you've stopped thinking and growing as an individual. Um, you know, it's, you know, yeah, a little absolutely. bit, some works, some no, not No, 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 but, 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 it, but it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing that we deal with, right? Because we go through school and, and, you know, the, the number, I don't have it off the top of my head, but we could, we have the internet. Um, the number of people who have, you know, the majority of people in this world do not read another book after they graduate high school. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we're like fed certain works, right. While we're in that stage of our brains being plastic and well, hopefully they still are. Bernadette, mm -hmm. I'm 58, so I'm I'm <laughs> counting on my plasticity. However, <laughs> we're less flexible, right? As we as we age, and so you know, like as a as a, in when I was a kid, as a boy, you're supposed to read Isaac Asimov. You're supposed to read Ray Bradbury. You're supposed to read, you know, later years William Gibson, the great creator of all science fiction. You know, but when you, what do you? You're, you're probably reading it too young. You know what else I did recently? I reread Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Mm -hmm. Now, I read that when I was like 16 years old in, you know, 10th grade English at Sherwood mm -hmm. High School, right? Mm -hmm. I hated it. I thought it was the dumbest book ever. I hated Holden Caulfield. I, I thought it was dumb. I, he wasn't even very clever. And, you know, it wasn't very risque, right? Mm -hmm. 
I read it again, like maybe five years ago. It's like the best book on the planet. <laughs> yeah. It's so tragic. It's all about p- this kid and this PTSD and, and how his roommate committed suicide because he was homosexual and he was being harassed by the other kids and how his brother and his parents are absent. And he's just, and it's, and I read the book and I was like, I can't believe I didn't see any of that yes. when I was 16 yes. years old. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we read books at the wrong time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's, you know, you got to sync up with that, of course. But there's, there's, there is an importance to these that we have to keep reading and keep revisiting. You know, 1984. Yes. Why, why are we so worried about 1984? Ah, ha, ha. It's so cute. Brave New World. Yeah, I read that when I was 15. I read it again, again, maybe six years ago. And I had totally forgotten, like, the whole bulk of the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All you do is think about oh, taking the the somos, whatever the name of yeah. the pill is, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, soma, soma, soma. Yeah. What about the dude from the other, you know, the the caveman dude? Who I mean, there's a it's a whole story that's in there that I was like, I totally don't remember this from when I read it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so much, and there were things I want to bring up here about like the the little kids playing at the very beginning of the book, but. I mean, there's, we are on AM radio. So there's, it's like, I didn't see that. I didn't get it. I was just so, so yeah. So let, let's, um, I'm going to go ahead and share Garth, the, you, you, um, provided us with, thank you, a, a PDF with some, some of the graphics so we can kind of see. Um, so you wrote the story and the text and then Matthew Southworth, a very famous artist, right? Did the yeah. art. Yeah, we, it's yeah. a lot more collaborative than that. We we oh, worked okay. very closely together. He uh, was trained as a playwright and uh, worked in Hollywood as a uh, you know, reading screenplays and stuff for for he knows story, mm-hmm. and so he and I have a lot uh, closer collaboration than kind of is betrayed by written by Garth and drawn by Matt. Um, okay, but 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 I do not draw, so he kind of wins the battle because. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but before we get going here, Garth, let's, and I kind of want to repeat it a couple of times, you're going to be give, doing a giveaway, right? So let's yes. tell people about your giveaway. And is it the second book that's about to come out? I'm going to give both books. So we, the, the Cloven is a three book trilogy as scripted, although it could go on if people want to see more. Okay. Um, so the first book came out in 2020 and was kind of killed by COVID. It came out in yeah. July of 2020 and we couldn't go out and, and sell the book um, because all the comic cons had closed down and mm. bookstores had closed down and it was, just, you know, how it was. And so it's kind of, it, it felt, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't get as big an audience as we had hoped. So now this is book two that's coming okay. out um, on August 29th. And we were just down at Comic-Con last month promoting it. Uh, uh, which was a whole trip in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And book three is in the, we're working on, Matt's working on the artwork. I've, he's got the script. Cool. And so what I have is book one and book two, and I'll, they'll be signed by me um, and possibly by Matt, if I can get to him. He doesn't live far. He lives up in Muckleteo. Oh, nice. And um, so what, if you send me, what the way we have to do this is if you send an email to, to my uh, kind of fan email account um, and you put somewhere either in the subject or in the body, put informed talk radio. Um, informed life radio. I'm sorry. Informed life radio. That's okay. 
I didn't, the logo vanished on me. Yeah. <laughs> Informed Life Radio. Um, and then just put in, you know, I, I want to be a part of this uh, giveaway uh, and email it to me. I will randomly generate a winner and you will receive, and you'll have, I'll ask for your address, mailing yeah. address. It doesn't have to be your home. And then I'll send you these signed copies so you can have them for your own enjoyment. Um, so my email address there would be GS, as in Garth Stein, GSFan at garthstein.com so send me an email and if one of you sends me an email you win so that's yeah <laughs> so the odds are good right <laughs> the odds are good. and if you're watching this as a recording i apologize if let, let people give us a let's pick a date at random of when you'll do okay. it so if they're listening to this tomorrow or okay whatever. okay let's let's say uh let's give it let's say september 1st september you 1st should, you should send me I'll decide. I'll make a decision on December 1st. Okay. And you know what? Every one of you is going to get a little something. So yeah. you should probably uh, participate. Yeah. I like that. I like that very much. And then you're going to try to find a goat to make the, the drawing. right? <laughs> and and I say that because here we go. We, we let, let's move a, a little bit and, and kind of get on to um, the cloven here. And I've got two pages of notes that I took on um, to ask you questions as we go. Um, but we'll see, here's the, the cover and uh, the art is amazing. And my son, who is a digital artist, um, self-taught, he's quite wonderful. He thought the art was amazing. He, he really, he's 20 and he, he really loved yeah. the art. For me, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, um, a more of a happy light kind of person yeah, this is and it's dark. like but this really appeals i think generationally too to a lot of kids um feel understood when they read stuff that has that dark tone because of what life is throwing at them right now you know i believe so so um i'm just going to kind of scroll through and i'll i'll, I'll yeah this stop is on. the this is from book one and and so we don't even know what's happening i mean i what i wanted to do was kind of address this sort of the the discombobulation of the world that we live in right now with i mean really honestly sometimes i like walk around and i'm like i don't even know what day today is like right. not even, i'm not even talking about the date like mm -hmm. i don't know the date for sure but the I don't even know if it's a Tuesday or a Thursday sometimes. And I think that a lot of that has to do with sort of the way we get our, our patterns of information kind of coming into our brain has been disrupted by 24 hour nonstop social media barragement. If I can and we're not working bold. Monday through Friday, nine to five sort of stuff. So right. we're not. Yeah. It used to be, right. you always knew Monday and Friday, but now it's hard to say. Right. And, and so we, it makes it difficult then to draw barriers for ourselves like when do i stop working during the day right because i always have work to do and it's all i'm on my own i write and i promote my stuff right and so i always have to be working and i've gotten to the point where it's like you know 10 30 at night and i'm working and i'm thinking why am i why I know work has to get done, but don't I get to unplug from that at some? So there's that whole thing was sort of what I did with the timeline of the Cloven is mm -hmm. just chop it up, sort of like a la Pulp Fiction, and so we get different bits of the story at different times. Okay, and I don't, but we don't explain it, so you got to figure it out. So in a sense, I'm challenging the reader to participate in a in a live stream puzzle. I'm, you know. 
I'm really glad that you say that you did that intentionally because I did find I had to slow down and really think what is happening? What am I witnessing? That's a really good um, thing to explain to an individual. This is what's supposed to happen. It's not you. It's not you. It, it, it's not you. This is confusing intentionally to give you this particular experience. And, to, and what I love about that thing is it makes it participatory. It makes you have to participate in the unraveling and you become more engaged because you're participating in the story. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and it also makes you do what you just alluded to, which is slow down. Mm. What I found is because I write in long form fiction, I write novels that are 300, 400 pages long, you know, and so you, you can luxuriate. That's like, that is the slow boat, you know, mm -hmm. that is just like, exactly. you can take your time on that. Yeah. And, um, when I gave it to people who are my writer friends to read this graphic novel, mm -hmm. what I found was they weren't looking at the pictures. They were just reading the words. Exactly. Uh, because that's what they're used to, you know? Yes. Yeah. So they, they're just like pounding through it. And I'm like, do you, they're like, I don't get what happened there. I was like, well, go back and, and read the words again, but now stop. And before you move to the next frame, look at the picture. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, he totally did this in that. I didn't realize that he was doing that. I'm yeah. like, right. Because you're used to reading text and I'm trying to get you to read picture and text. And yeah. this is another generational thing. Young people are, are much more used to pictures and text together because of ironically, not because they grew up reading comic books because they grew up reading, you know, Snapchats and Instagrams and memes and mini videos on well, YouTube about dogs. And anime too, though. I mean, not anime. anime. What, what, what's it called? The, is, am I getting the words right? When when it's the not the cartoon, not the video one, but the the well, book manga. Manga. Thank you. Yeah. So same kind of concept. Sure, Very absolutely. few words, but you have to pay attention to what's unfolding in the picture. Manga, especially because you know you sometimes you're not even reading it. I mean, there are kids who read it in Japanese. You know, know. they're in in a sense you really are reduced in that because. See, we, we're attracted, we Westerners who um, are readers are mm -hmm. attracted by the bubbles because the bubbles got the words in them that we can recognize. And we know when you read the words and you get something out of it. And then, you know, that's how literature works. Mm -hmm. I've, I've looked at some really cool, I'm kind of into, I'm trying to get myself into a little bit of Japanese horror manga. And it's, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's, it's weird and weird cool stuff. and yeah. you don't need the words. You yeah. don't need the word. They could be written in Japanese. I, I can still get the story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how brilliant is that? I mean, yeah. so that's what I'm trying to play with with this. And we'll see if we can find an audience. But we're a little that's bit. That's cool. Yeah. For a lot of us older what? folks here, when we would ever in the past read words with drawings, it was like Archie comic books. And there really wasn't right. a lot of thinking to, to be done there, right. you know, um, you know, a hamburger's dropped or somebody's winking at somebody. It wasn't, it didn't require the sort of thought processes that um, what you're creating here does. So um, I'm just going to scroll through. If you sure. have yeah. a particular image that you would like. Yeah. To so he up in the, he, we begin in uh, just discordant. We just begin in this weird room. We don't know if it's a hospital or a laboratory. He's, we re, we were revealed that he is not a normal person. He's a mutant. We don't know anything about it, but he is, we understand that he is, we learn that he's half goat, half person. He has the digestive tract of a ruminant. The idea being that maybe that would end world hunger because they can eat blackberry bushes and we can't. Wow. And maybe this is <laughs> going to work. And then suddenly 
this young woman comes up to him and says, you got to go because they're about to euthanize you. So here, get out of here. And he takes off. And that's, that's how we launched the story. He has no memory of anything that's happened. Oh, wow. yeah. And he's suddenly thrust into this, you know, uh, born identity, sort of mm-hmm. born goat identity. Mm-hmm. You know, Matt Damon would be great for this project. If anybody knows <laughs> Matt Damon and says he should be Tuck, I think that's a win. I think it's a win. That is a win. 100%. So he ends up, he flees and he ends up, the only place he can find that he feels protected is among the homeless population in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it, it, we, have a, we have a problem in Seattle with the homeless population and, and many of them have taken up residence in an area called the jungle, which mm-hmm. is an encampment underneath the interstate freeway that goes through mm-hmm. the city. And so we don't look at, they're, they're a Shonda for us, right? We, 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 what do we do? We can't, we can't provide housing for our brother and sister citizens of the country that we live in, that we pay taxes for, that we love, and they, they have no place to live. And so our reply to that is let's legalize urban camping. Right. (laughs) Huh? Right. That. That's not solving the problem. No. I don't know who's in charge. And I, sometimes I'm pretty sure nobody is. Yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> but that, that I know that is not the answer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to set this story in like, take, like take mutants who are genetically modified in some secret laboratory on Vashon Island, mm-hmm. release them into the general, general population. And where are they going to find? They're going to find the margins where other people find but exactly. the places where people won't look the places where people are yeah. ashamed to look the people they avert their eyes. They say, I know there's something there, but I don't want to know the details. Here's $5. Right. Mm-hmm. To what? To, assuage our our guilt for the fact that we're living we have so much income inequality in the northwest which is also what the book is about you know we have more billionaires per square inch than any other city on the planet here in the northwest and we have thousands of people living in tents underneath the freeway mm-hmm. there's something really wrong with that yeah and i don't know why but everybody's been bitten by some weird zombie drug and they're just walking around saying oh no it's okay it's all right. It's going to be fine. It'll be fine. Right. It'll be fine. Yeah. And I just don't. So what part of what I wanted to do with this book is like throw it at people and bang them on the head with it and say, wake up. Yeah. Look exactly. around. Yeah. Um, you, you do have a character named Barry Goff. And I do <laughs> like that. It's a B G combination of words. We all know where you're going with that. And it was really fun. Um, you know, the, the rules of fiction. Well, so you were using real life people and places in your fictional novel that was like, to me, like really writing the edge of like, you know, how things were showing it, but it makes, it's really fun to read when you're recognizing the people and the places and the, uh, the different things. Um, it, 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 but Barry Goff is entirely hundred percent fictional and has nothing to do with anybody else who may share similar initiatives. Just so you know, right. I just want everyone to know real clearly. I, I know nothing. I see nothing. This yeah. is, I just want to, cause I got a family I got to take care of. And, yeah. But. Well, th- this is the beauty of fiction and currently <laughs> in a world of free speech, some remain right now. It's it, like AM radio. I love KNW and all across the nation, AM radio and some FM radio. Also, we still bastion of free speech. If you just don't drop the bad words, which we're all trying to be cognizant. Fair enough. Here. Fair enough. And, um, 
that and, and books. There are still, I mean, we got to buy hardcover books. And today, yes. I, I got to make note, um, Javier, today's August 25th. Yes. Today is the deadline for the European Digital Services Act, where all the major companies that do business, that are American companies, but they do business in Europe, today's the deadline. If they've got <coughs> mal, dis, or misinformation that is being housed or shared <coughs> on their platforms, then um, today's the day, the beginning of when they could be fined 6% of their annual revenue for it remaining up there. So it's it's really a concern. I've been watching, I, don't, I haven't seen anything in particular, but it is interesting that Twitter now, where we had such huge hopes for free speech, they have hired that one woman. Do you remember, Javier, do you remember her name? I don't remember her name, but I know that she is a current <coughs> member of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. Garth, do you need to take a break and get a drink of water? Okay, we're gonna let him go get a drink of water. When he comes back, I will bring him back on. Um, yeah, so she, everybody was shocked when he said he, she was gonna be one of the major um, people running X now, which is Twitter. Linda Yaccarino. Think, yeah, Yaccarino. I mean, that just seems like, if, if I know better how to quickly tell jokes, there we go, but we won't. I never want this to be personal or ad hominem. And this is far too serious for that. Um, so they've really announced that information that's legal to share, but they deem to be dangerous to share for whoever is making the decision, you're not gonna be able to, it, you can post it, but you won't be able to share it. It will be basically shadow banned. And you know, this this really is a concern. I'm gonna bring you back, Garth, you better? Yeah, I'm good. I okay. swallowed something wrong there. Good. Okay. Um, I watched a little an interview with her. Yeah. And it's crazy. She, I mean, what yeah. they're what the new plans that they have. And by the way, Facebook is doing it too. Yeah. Oh yeah. All so with up. Twitter, what they're doing is they're demonetizing. So what they're saying is they won't even if you have something that they deem incorrect, then it will not be shown adjacent to a sponsor. Yeah. Because this they're worried about sponsor association. Right. Oh. And not only so not only can you will you not be able to be uh, retweeted, and not only will you if even if you follow somebody, you won't get their feed of exactly yeah mm -hmm. i mean it's really i mean it's censorship it's just censorship and and they're doing it at youtube as well and it's all and can i just say it's really important that we all just get this very very clear in our minds there is no good censorship no no there isn't 100 no. no and by the way cj hopkins was actually found guilty in germany uh, uh of violating german laws of uh basically appearing to be pro-Nazi when he's a satirist. Now, C.J. Hobbins is an American that lives in Germany, and uh, the German government found him guilty for, for him actually uh, disagreeing with the Minister of Health and writing a book comparing the uh, excesses of lockdowns and mask wearing and mandates to a particular party that appeared in the 1930s in Germany. Wow. And is he in prison now? This. He is going to be imprisoned either for 60 days or be fined 3,600 euros mm -hmm. uh, or both, depending on how it goes. So it's again, Germany, like for example, the, the digital, the digital uh, acts uh, in Europe and Germany uh, right now, uh, unless like you said, like you've said before, Bernadette, mm -hmm. it's either stand up time or bend over. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's very concerning, and and with some successful. Well, oh my gosh. I, I know. That's not like me, is it? I'm but, blushing. <laughs> I've been saying that for, for years. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I apologize. It's a little crude, but got to wake people up. Um, we do. Yes. Please. Yeah. Yeah. We really do. And I've lost my train of thought. And that's okay. Because I tend to. Oh, gosh, to sorry. I, I ramble too much. And I want to get, uh, Garth, I want to get back to your book so that the readers um, and listeners, they, they get to hear a little bit more about this work. Um, so let's continue uh, sharing some imagery here. Let me bring it on screen. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it goes through. Uh, let me see if I can. There's find Barry Goff. There, we have Barry Goff here. He's the evil genius billionaire, okay. quirky billionaire genius. And yeah. so. Um, and the guy in the green shirt down here in the lower right, that's uh, uh, Dr. Kenneth Langner, who's our geneticist with a heart of gold. And some of this yeah. is just to, kind of to show kind of the, the way our Matt, Matt is a brilliant Matt Southworth, my partner. Mm -hmm. I love him. He's brilliant. I mean, I write things and when I work on them, I write them as a script and I overwrite because I want him to know everything that's going on in my little weird brain. And then he does the black and whites, the inks as we call them, and then gives them back to me. And then I see how we, we work on the layout and everything to do the pacing. And then I reword the, I, I rewrite the dialogue to fit his pictures mm -hmm. because I realize how few words I need There you when go. I've got the pictures. Yeah. And, and I just think that, that anybody who like says, Oh, I don't read, I read comic books when I was a kid, but whatever, you know, there is a history for, um, provocative graphic novels, which started with the word graphic novels. It used to just be comic books. And the first time graphic novel was used was for um, Art Spiegelman's um, Mouse, Mouse series, mm. which was using mice and rats, mice being the Jews and rats being the Nazis, to mm. depict Nazi Germany in a three book or four book series. I can't remember how many books it was. Mm. We can talk about like really difficult things with pictures and comics and kind of we talk as we objectify them so that we can talk about things that are too uncomfortable for us to talk about if we were to do it as a novel i think that's why drella didn't like my first go at this with words because mm -hmm. it was too believe it or not the words were too literal mm -hmm. right i mean it, it was it's just way too specific whereas the pictures if you can train yourself to sit in them and you have to train yourself to read a graphic novel the same way you train yourself to read to listen to an audiobook Mm -hmm. Everyone's, oh, I can't listen to an audio book. I get distracted. It's a, it's a discipline. Learn the discipline. And then it's amazing mm -hmm. because Kenneth Branagh's reading of Frankenstein is everybody should experience that in their lives. Yeah. Just do it. So this is another way of what I'm trying to do is perforate, you know, sort of the barriers that we have and, and say, let's talk about some of these really difficult things, but we're going to do it in a way that is going to make you think it's funny and fake and ha ha ha. And then, you know, I can say how close to truth it really is. We can talk all about the genetics. That's all right. accurate. All the genetics yeah. are accurate that are in the, in the graphic novel. The, we can talk about the secret yeah. societies. The, the, in book two, there's a whole secret, yeah. like, weird society in the woods, like, burning a gigantic goat statue in effigy, which is totally modeled on the Bohemian Grove, which, by the way, is real. Is real. So I don't, you know, we, sometimes we are afraid, you know, I, I use this line in the book, you know, we, we, we clench our eyes shut. So we see no evil, dude, we can't, 
You got to open the eyes, man. You got to open yeah. the eyes. Yep. Even if it, even if it's horrible, what we're seeing, we got to see it. You don't want to go through life with your eyes closed, man. There's no fun. There's no fun or learning or anything in that. Or changing. If, if you don't, you, the, the evil is perpetuated and, and dark darkness allows to continue because our eyes are shut and we have to see it if we want to change it. Right. Yes. Um, and we have to challenge ourselves and it's not comfortable. And, and that's the problem right now. It's, it's too easy for people to slip into, you know, the, wow. God, I actually almost said this and then I stopped myself, but now I'm going to say it. The party line. <laughs> yeah. Right. That, that's from the old days. Yeah. It's from the new days. Like we don't want to take in information that's going to contradict the information that we're convinced has to be true to make our world reconcile. So we don't go insane. Yeah. Right. And that's, we, that means that means we're living entirely out of fear. Correct. And, and we should not live a life out of fear. And, and it's, it's, it's both so that we don't go insane because everything we know is not true and you have to change, which is very, you know, devastating to, to be, but it's the resistance I think really starts is we don't want to make those hard changes. We don't want to give up what we have and know, because even if it's not perfect, it's the familiar, you know, you don't want to give up. If you stand up and tell truth, if you're in a certain career, your career is over. That's right. And you're going to have to start life over. Um, you're going to be able to look yourself in the mirror because you're now um, uh, standing by your truth. Um, but it's it's very difficult. There's many, many reasons why people are rather, they'd rather bend over. Yeah, right. And fear, I think, is a big part of that, losing what we have, right? And then, but what we don't consider, I don't think, is that we're just kicking the, we're just kicking it down the road because our yeah. kids, someone's going to be dealing with it, someone. Yeah. And maybe we get away with it, yeah. but our kids, and maybe right. they get away with it, right. but then their kids, yeah, I was not get, they are not getting away with it. I was recently talking to a nurse who's like completely with you guys. I want to help out with this particular thing, but we can't see in person because we're afraid of losing our jobs. And one by one, the hospital that we work at, where they had accepted our religious exemptions, they're reviewing the exemptions and they're now saying they will not honor them. I'm like, so why are you afraid to stay up? Because your career is about to be pulled. Oh yeah. And when they start it up again, you're going to be in the same situation. It's like you're buying yourself a week, a month, a year with a guaranteed future. If you don't obey, you're done. If you don't, you got to stand up now where you can stand up. Stand up now while, while AM radio is free. Exactly. While books are still not being uh, burned. And, you know, I'm all for like, we started off this show, Garth, where you said that parents need to pay attention to what their kids are reading and make sure it's appropriate for where their kids are and their own values. This is not censorship. This is parenting. Mm -hmm. And schools do not have the right to parent your children. So I don't believe nope. in censorship or banning books, but I do believe that it's the parent's job to ensure that their child sees what is appropriate at the right age. Yeah. And you, you as a parent get to decide what's yeah. appropriate and what the right age is. Yeah. You. Yeah. Not, yeah. not the school district, not the teacher. Yes. They're hired. You know, we, we pay them. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the idea of collective schooling is what, I mean, it's, it's, to give parents some free time, right? Because back in the old days, <laughs> yeah, we'd educate our own kids. Or you, if you were in the rich, if you're in the upper classes, you would hire, you know, 
the tutor. Yeah. 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 You, you, you get the sound of music and there you go. Mary Poppins is educating your kids. It's great, yeah. but we can't do that. We got to work. And so we have to generate the income. So we created a, a communal system that communal system of educating should really, I'm sorry, am I saying something controversial, reflect the community values? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I just, I feel that I'm really, I mean, here's the thing. I wrote a comic book and it's a goofy comic book. Look, and got beautiful waterfront. That's gone now. They, they tore it down. But Waterfront City, Waterfront Park in Seattle is no more because wow. of the whole revisions to the Alaska way thing. But oh, this has got all sorts of great imagery yep. in there. The great Seattle wheel and all I'm that. I'm really but afraid for us. I'm mm -hmm. afraid for our, I'm afraid that we are ceding um, too much responsibility uh, that we need to take for ourselves, yeah. for our own lives, for our own destinies. I mean, I know it sounds highfalutin. I feel like a, a, a promo for Star Trek or something. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, you know, we, we have to, we have to take responsibility for where we are and what we're doing here. And mm -hmm. we, we can't just leave it to someone else and think that, well, they'll probably get it right. <laughs> I don't have any faith in this. I mean, I was listening to someone on the radio being like, oh yeah, apparently there are some problems where people have a lack of faith in institutions. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Didn't um, take Scooby Doo to figure out that one. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah. Um, now the Garth, the, the image on the screen now, we've got um, a lot of people that are like the goat people type. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the genetic stuff going on here, but they're doing parkour, which is sport yeah. my son loves. A lot of people love, and I love that you integrated that in there. But it's it's like you said, it's the homeless, these outcasts, these people that have been. Um, harmed iatrogenically via medicine, environmentally, but they have found each other and they're trying to find meaning in their lives together. They're mm -hmm. trying to find joy. They're young. They want to, they want to have that feeling of that thrill and feeling like life has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think you really captured some of the lost souls that some of our young people feel today, you know? And I, so I, I saw that, you know, just underneath, there along with what the story is, is on yeah. the surface. No, that, that's definitely what I was, we were trying to work with. And, and the idea that these guys are out there doing these midnight rompings and the, you yeah. know, they, they run through the city naked at the middle of the night. And there, there's at, right after this, if you, if you purchase the book and read it, um, right after <laughs> yeah. it, uh, there's a TV, uh, an, you know, TV news the next morning says, mm -hmm. oh, and a bunch of uh, protesters were out last yeah. night doing a little naked romp you know, yeah. dressed up as these mythical beings. So that was and the other they were protesting thing. homelessness. And everyone's like, oh yeah, of course. They there weren't really goat people. They were fake goat people because the news told us they're fake. Yes. So. I love that aspect of this story. That was like you you captured so many things. Uh, you know, here, like my list is you captured the dangers of human, human genetic experimentation. Um, you captured the fact that people will be afraid. And when they meet somebody that they have been told to fear, they are so willing to turn on them for cash. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that whole cash was there. Um, oh, you had a reporter for the stranger, which I thought was really cool. But, um, <laughs> But then you would say things in there. The characters would have things that were sort of just blatantly on the page. Love equals life. 
you know, and it was like these little wonderful, hopeful little mini truth bombs in the middle of this dark chaos. You would get love equals life, which I thought was so cool. Um, what else did I have in there? Um, oh, one of the quotes I have, I was on page nine of book two. Uh, you reduce and control with disease and disaster. Bingo. That's where yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, that, but that's a guy, that's the guy that's, that's our genius, uh, Kenneth Langer, Dr. Kenneth Langer, who won the Nobel Pi prize, uh, in chemistry in 1996. And he invented the cloven, these okay. things. And he, uh, ends up getting suicided as you can see. Right yeah. Here, in fact, and that you may think that's a spoiler alert, but Hey man, it, it's, yeah. It's part of the way the world works, but yeah, he, he, he's a crackpot, right? Mm -hmm. He's not, mm -hmm. he's the only sane person in this entire thing. Aside yeah. From Tuck, our main hero. Yeah. But, but he's been designated a crackpot by yeah. the authorities and by the news and by the medical institutions. He's, he's been, he's been outlaid. He's been marginalized. And so whatever he says sounds like it must be from a crackpot. But the fact of the matter is, one can see an actual, it, it doesn't take a conspiracy to read, no. you know, data. I, no. I hate to say and, it. <laughs> no. And I, what I love about that particular theme there is just like so many people in science today, they felt like they set out to do good. And when they realized they were used, um, I mean, the devastation and then him a try, trying to make things right. Yeah, because he was a good soul. It just, you know, it was hard. Now, um, re respecting we are on AM radio here. This this image is very haunting of what it really is portraying that we have. We have this. We have the goat young man wearing um, a tuxedo, holding a serving tray, with some very chaotic um, faces and imagery and colors. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. And we're getting close to, um, can yeah, you can believe it, it, the top of the hour. So um, I want to make sure that you give, after you explain this, let's make sure we give the giveaway email address again. Okay. 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 So what happens is at some point, Tuck, when he's living with the homeless, the cloven in the homeless population gets picked out by this weird dude. He doesn't know what's going on. He gets whisked away and he ends up becoming a performer at this weird secret quasi Illuminati sort of gathering yeah. in the North Cascades, worshiping goat people. And these cloven are put on display. Mm -hmm. They're dressed up, but they don't wear, they have to wear capri pants so that everyone can see their hoofs. So that everybody who's at this party, and you probably can recognize some faces of famous politicians or Supreme Court justices or something in there who um, are at this event being served their champagne in crystal flutes by mutant goat people. Art imitating life. So yeah. it was really important to bring all that in, Zadi. Yeah. I mean, it was like really, it was really awesome to like, yeah. and it goes on in this whole, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the dynamics of it. Yeah, it, um, it just amazing. I'm going to go back to real quick and show um, uh, the cover of this here. And Garth, go ahead and tell people where they can enter the drawing yeah. and then where they can find their book if they want to just go ahead and purchase it and not take a chance of not winning your drawing. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Cloven, there are two books, book one and book two. If you email me at gsfan at garthstein.com um, and put informed life radio in the subject matter then and say, Hey, I want to be in this giveaway. I'll 
pick, pick a random winner and I will send you both a copy of book one and book two for your enjoyment. You could find it on all online booksellers. You know, you can go to the mega ones. I encourage you really to go to your local bookstore. And if that doesn't work for you, you know, um, bookshop.org is a great place that also, you know, helps the, the writing public. It gives money back to the bookstores. It's super important to keep our bookstores vibrant in our communities. Yeah. We have to maintain this person-to-person connection Absolutely. in our world that we yes. lose so quickly and so easily. And it's easy way to do that is to go down to your hardware store or your grocery store or your bookstore and have a conversation with a real human being. It's yeah. so crazy. It's amazing. You know, <laughs> They smile at you and it's like, wow, I just got endorphins from that. I didn't even know. Amazon yeah. has never given me endorphins. I'm sorry. No. no. So please, um, <laughs> I have a bunch of events. Check out my website. GarthStein.com is my website. And we have a specific website, thecloveproject.com. It has some kind of fun stuff about kind of conspiracies and so forth. But you can find my schedule on either of those websites. And Bernadette and... Zavi, thank you so much for having me on this terrific show. I'm so I'm so honored. Well, we are honored to have you on, sir, and just grateful to have you in our lives and your lovely wife. And, you know, this is what it's all about. It's like real communication. Uh, being in person, I couldn't have said it better. When you and I first met, the big war was against the little stores and Amazon. And it's really amazing how important that has become to really support the little guy. And we might next move toward having to support the little book printer to keep yeah. things in print and no keep doubt. truth alive. Well, Garstein, thank you so much. And Javier, we will be back. Um, thank you everybody for listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM, KK and TV. We'll be back in a few minutes. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to the Flame USA. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. We need a revolution. Hello and welcome back to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and my co-host is the wonderful Dr. Javier Figueroa joining me. There he is. Hello, sir. Hello, so, hello. Isn't Garth just, he's so much fun to talk to. Um, he is. <laughs> he's an amazing writer, and I wish him well on the on the Cloven, on the second book in his graphic novel. Very dark, very adult, so preview it. But, you know, I think it's going to be one of those that will be an example reflective of history, you know, Absolutely. Um, yeah, that will live to tell this sad tale, but I believe we will come through. So we'll, we'll see if he gets through to some really light and, and jubilant end to the series, right? Exactly. <laughs> it would be nice. That would be nice, yes. <laughs> and, you know, staying on this theme, um, you know, Garstein is just one in a long line of authors who have used their talents to to grapple with issues um, of society and governments and um, and and so much more, and so I'm very excited to bring on Brad Miller, um, and um, there he is. Hi, Brad. Nice to meet you. Hey, Bernadette. Nice to meet you, Javier. Good to see you again. Oh, you guys have met. Yeah, yes. we met just a couple of days ago. Yeah. Small world. That Small is, world. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. So, um, Brad, you're going to be teaching a, a class in September on on literature, which we're going to get into. But first, uh, tell viewers a little bit about yourself, because until recently, let me see, I've got it written down here somewhere. You were um, a commander in the 101st Airborne Battalion. And due to you standing um, in your ethics and your truth and, and saying no to the COVID shot, which you do not believe in, you retired. Um, or or was there, the, tell me, there's, I think there's more to the story. So I'll let you begin. Yeah, I, I resigned. I did not retire. But um, yeah, but other than that, you're, you're pretty much right on. So I was, um, real quick about me, yeah, I, was, I graduated from West Point in 2003, uh, had a career in the Army which culminated in me serving as a battalion commander in the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I assumed command of the battalion in June of 2021. So if we remember our timeline, that's about two months before DOD implemented the uh, the VAX mandate. To make a long story very short, I refused to go along with it. I was uh, relieved of command in October of 2021. And then a couple of months later, a little after the new year, once I realized that the Department of Defense was not going to walk this back, they were not going to, they weren't going to come to their senses, as it were. Then I just decided that, you know what, um, it's not so much that I'm against the institution. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm proud to have served in the Army, but um, 
I just would not continue to serve under the current leadership. And I just decided to, uh, to walk away. I felt like I was being placed in a situation where I had to um, either choose my loyalty to the country, my oath to the constitution or my career and continued service in the military. And I understand mm. that that probably seems a little bit paradoxical that someone would say, Hey, I actually had to leave the military to feel like I was making good on my oath to the constitution. But that is the situation that I felt like I was in. Right. Wow. That, yeah, that that's, a, and, and I applaud you because I know that's probably one of the most difficult decisions of your life. And so many um, in, in the past few years and now and moving forward are facing that same decision and more individuals like you who stand up and decide I'm going to do what's right. You know, you're seeing the big picture. I so applaud you for that, sir. So, yeah. Um, oh, we lost your sound there for a second. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get you right back. So um, I would love to know. So 2003 is when you graduated from military academy, you said. And so did you have, because now you're teaching uh, a literature course through ipac-edu.org, fantastic online university for the people, very affordable classes. I, I, I've got, I'm trying to get Dr. James Lyons Weiler to give me like a little promo to play every week because I, I wish everybody, whenever they can, can just go sign up for a course. There's so many amazing courses to be informed and really understand how to read science, read about the ethics. And now with this course expanded to what you're going to be doing on classic literature, have you always had an interest in literature? You don't, Go ahead. Oh, we're not hearing you. Let's see if we can get your sound back. Yeah, well, he's trying to get that going. Let's see, is that working? Hmm. hmm. I don't know what happened there. I yeah, don't have, uh, let me see, let me try on my Nothing end. Yet, no. It says your mic is not connected. See if you've got a loose wire there. Um, and while he does that, um, I'm going to go ahead and put him backstage a little bit while he works on getting that going. But Javier, I know like when you were talking with Garth a little bit, I, I feel like you're probably a little bit more well-read of the classics. You were and he were discussing um, there were a couple of titles that I had not read um, or weren't recognizing. So what about you? You studied science. Yes. But were you also interested in literature? Um, Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, drove me into getting uh, interested in the literature was the absolute lack of historical knowledge I had about my fields. Wow. Oh. So one of those things that really uh, uh, made me realize that uh, there was a huge learning cur curve ahead of me is when I was uh, working in uh, Jerry Pollock's lab at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. And uh you know, having a, a good grounding on the historical basis of how science is done, how ideas become accepted, how ideas become excluded or overturned are, are, were such a critical component for me to understand that. So going back to the basics, you know, the, the classical education of the trivium, trivium and the quadrivium. Uh, You've got to tell me what that is. That's like, whew. So in classic <laughs> Greek education, trivium okay. is grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Quadrivium is astronomy, uh, geometry, uh, mathematics, and uh, logic. Okay. So the basis of it. So you first have to know how to uh, uh, grammar, read, mm -hmm. rhetoric, speak, 
logic think through, and then astronomy, geometry, uh, mathematics, and the fourth one is uh, not logic, but um, ah, I'll, it'll come to me. So okay. there is a basis, a, a fundamental basis that uh, you know the Western scientific method is founded on, and it's that grammar, rhetoric, and logic, ma mathematics, astronomy, geometry, and um, can't It'll come to it. Yeah. But doesn't it seem like, I mean, if we look at like rhetoric, the art of language in a way, yeah. that seems like that is now what drives everything. We, it, I've mm -hmm. often said we're in a marketing war because no, it's who's got the best slogans that can make people feel more fearful in what direction and drive them. And it, it cuts off um, critical thinking in the frontal lobe or whatever. So they go in that direction, but being able to pull back and, and think deeply and critical, which, which as um, Garth Stein in the first hour pointed out, sometimes things that are very difficult to think about in the here and now because you're in them, if you get that distance through art, through exactly. literature, it helps you grapple with it, but at that distance that feels a little safer. So you can, you can think. And so it looks like we have Brad back. Do we have you back, sir? Yeah, hopefully you can hear me. Not quite sure what happened with our connection. Yes, we are back. Wonderful. So I was asking you about your own um, history of uh, reading literature, enjoying literature, knowing about it. Um, yeah, so um, I've always been a big fan of uh, reading. I've always been a big, a big, a big fan of literature. I don't necessarily, that's not what my degree is in, but, um, but I've always enjoyed the liberal arts. I've always been a fan of history as well. And so when I was speaking to Dr. James Lyons Weiler about how we might be able to assist IPAC EDU in branching out a little bit from the, the heavy science focus, not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ideas that we came up with was this course, which we've called Literature as Resistance. Mm -hmm. And so what's the premise of this course? Well, the premise of this course, and you can see there on the screen that the subtitle that we put was Recognizing, Unmasking, and Countering Totalitarian Tendencies. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is go through some of these texts that a lot of people are at least nominally familiar with, you know, like 1984. Everyone's at least heard of that. Many people have even read it. But what we want to do is maybe dig a little bit deeper into that and use some of these works like 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, almost as an interpretive lens to better understand the world that we live in right now. And a lot of us over the last couple of years have probably realized, you know what, we might be more headed for a dystopian future than we would have otherwise thought. So yes. let's dig in and see if we can uh, take some insights from some of these works that have been written, in some cases, nearly 100 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, yeah, it really is amazing how, um, and like we talked about in the, in the first hour, that when I first read these books, 1984, Brave New World, in high school, so much just blew past me. I didn't, I'm, it didn't grab me. I read it, eh, you know, um, and I can't remember even for sure that anything, surely nothing about it disturbed me. It might've been like interesting. It must've just felt like so foreign, like this would never happen sort of thing. But when I reread it just this past year, <laughs> whoa, how did yeah. I miss that? Sure. You know, and I'm going to say carefully, because this is AM radio and all that, but like some of the most disturbing themes that I can't believe I didn't notice, but I was just such a naive, innocent kid, was the um, sexualization of children and the 
Yeah, right. And the breaking up of the family unit and even breaking up of friendship units. Yeah. You know, is it a I'm getting them blurred in my head now, but is it a brave new world where brave new world. they it's like you've been you've been doing an awful lot with so and so over there. You need to expand your your circle. You've been spending too much time. They don't want you to bond or be too close with any individual. And I just, it, it's like, this is what's happening right now. Yeah. So, you know, what's fascinating is, um, and those are probably the two most well-known dystopian works in the West, 1984 yeah. and Brave New World. I've got both of them, you know, right here next to me. But um, a lot of times, so those are those two respective authors. You have George Orwell, the author, 1984, and Aldous Huxley, the author of uh, Brave New World, they each posit a, a kind of a different version of a dystopian future. So in 2023, when we look at the world that we live in, we can almost ask ourselves, well, what are the more Orwellian type themes that we see you know, in our reality right now? But also what maybe looks a little bit more like Brave New World? And that's kind of some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this course. But there's another novel that we're going to look at, too which most Americans are much less familiar with. And that's this novel right here. It's simply called We, W-E. This is a Russian novel. The author is Yevgeny Zamyatin. It was written in the very early days of the Soviet Union. It was written uh, between about 1920 and 1921. Oh, wow. My understanding is it was the first book that the Soviet Bureau actually censored. So it could not get published in the Soviet Union. It was smuggled out. And so therefore it was published first in English and only decades later in the 80s did it, did it ever actually get published in Russian. But this novel, which is now 100 years old, which was not extremely well known in the West, was known to have influenced authors such as George Orwell when he wrote 1984. And he was a reporter at that time, wasn't he? He was. So what's interesting is that both Aldous Huxley and George Orwell uh, were both members of the Fabian Society. They were. So you bring up an interesting point because um, when we talk about some of the themes that they bring up in their literature, we can ask ourselves, are these warnings? Are they looking out for us? You know, what might happen in the future? Or are they insiders? Do they, what is it that they know about the plan that they're actually telling us? So there are some interesting questions that we can look at when it comes to their background. Aldous Huxley has a brother who's also very well known kind of in those circles. His name was Julian. It's, it can be quite interesting when you look at the background of these, uh, particularly those two authors. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is that George Orwell drew the ire of the uh, State Department by contradicting their support for the Soviet Union in its early stages uh, when he basically claimed, no, you guys don't understand. The famines were engineered. This was not something you should be proud of. Yeah. And, you know, that's an incredible point, too, because. When you look at 1984, so when was that written? So it was written in, in 1949. Um, right. Another book that we're going to look at is Fahrenheit 451. So uh, an American author, Ray Bradbury, mm -hmm. written in 1953. So when you look at those, they're written kind of a couple of years after the close of World War II. Uh, we're moving into the Cold War, but during that time period, it might have been a little bit more difficult to see that. I mean, by the time Ray Bradbury is writing, uh, the Korean War has already, you know, has already taken place and the hostilities have started to die down, you know, by 1953, the treaty or um, the, uh, the, not the treaty, but the armistice would be signed. But um, this is kind of the time period in which they're writing. But Ray Bradbury, 
is also looking at what kind of has taken place in terms of the McCarthy era, looking at kind of what's going on here in the United States. And so you could almost ask yourself, is he critiquing the type of totalitarian society that we might see in the Soviet Union? Or is he critiquing some of the um, the censorship or the, the finger wagging that is going on here in the United States? So there's some interesting themes that we can also dive into in terms of what Ray Bradbury is thinking as an American writing in the early 1950s. Yeah. This is wonderful. And September 7th is when uh, the course is going to start. So people have time to sign up. Yeah, so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and let me just say on that. So um, it's going to we're going to run the course on Thursday evenings uh, once a week for about 90 minutes per lesson. They're going to be 19 lessons. If you miss a lesson, no big deal, because they'll all be recorded on Zoom. We'll send out the recordings. So if you miss one, you just watch it. You catch up. You're, you're right back in. You didn't lose anything. And in all honesty, if somebody were to sign up a little bit late, two or three weeks in, you could just watch the previous Zoom for the classes that you miss. You catch right back up and it's like you were there from the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, it ha- it is Zoom, so it's an electronic class and you don't get that wonderful in-person thing. However, you are in a virtual classroom with individuals concerned enough and curious enough about this mass subject matter that you find this amazing group of people because I, you know, um, having worked with Dr. James Lyons Weiler on another class and the conversations that happen are just phenomenal, you know, within that, the presentation and the conversation that happens. And I think in so many ways, um, seeking out education such as this, it helps you not feel alone and makes you realize that, hey, as a society, if we come together and we educate ourselves and we look at the past, um, you know, we're just going to be able to to work our way through this. Can you, uh, I've, I never heard of we, so mm-hmm. shame on me, but can you give us a little synopsis of what that um, book is about? Yeah. So, yeah. So let, let me actually, in doing so, I'll respond to that comment you just made about how um, we've got to try and find a way in which to express solidarity with each other and realize, hey, we're not in this alone because that's actually one of the things that they want to teach us. They want to teach you that you are alone. They want to atomize society. There's a reason that this novel is called We and Not I. It's because even from the title, you can tell that there is a collectivizing theme in the novel. And so the, um, the protagonist in this novel, he doesn't have a name. He's a number because in this, in this dystopian future, which is posited by uh, Zamiatin, there are no names. It's a post-apocalyptic future. There's a, um, there's a, the, the state superstructure that is in place is called one state. I mean, you know, it doesn't oh, take- are you kidding me? <laughs> And, and, wow. and let, let me remind you, this is a novel written a hundred years ago, uh, you know, in the early it. days of the Soviet Union. And you have a, uh, a societal hierarchy in the, you know, the, the superstructure, the state superstructure is called the one state and nobody has a name. You know, you are reduced to a number. The uh, protagonist is known as D503. He, mm. he has no name. That is that is his identity. So you could just imagine from right there. Well, so what does that mean when you have no name? And so you don't necessarily have a personal identity, but you're also immediately severed from your family because you don't even share some sort of family name with your siblings, with your father, with your mother, etc. And all of society is regulated by um, what I would call 
nowadays you'll hear the term kind of a scientific dictatorship. Yep. Well, there's a reason why some people say that this is the original dystopian novel, but everything, the society is run on mathematical formulas. I mean, this almost makes me think of um, some of your early societies in ancient times, like the Pythagoreans and kind of their almost uh, obsession of, uh, of mathematics. But you have a society which looks to optimize formulaically productivity in every sense of the word, where human beings are just another type of uh, resource to be exploited, which is why they don't have names. You live in a um, you live in a house that is assigned to you. The house is made of glass, so you are constantly being surveilled, and, and your daily activities are dictated to you by a um, by a table that lists the activities and the hour in which you're going to perform each activity to, you know, include even the most intimate of activities. I'm I'm like so shocked on so many levels. And I don't know, like, you know, 20 years ago, if I would have felt the impact of that, but because of where we're heading, the dehumanizing of our lives, it feels all too possible, which is so, I mean, and you know, it might not be glass walls, but the, all the walls are watching the, um, all the little things that are listening, everything is listening and watching and monitoring. And the thing about the number, Wow. I mean, that really is depersonalizing to, you, to, to be a number. It would make you think about yourself differently and everybody around you. That is, that is what, th thank you for that. I, I'm going to have to get a copy of that book now. I, I might have to see if I can squeeze into my over full schedule attending oh. this class because it sounds fantastic. And sure, the yeah, other thing is that this, that's just, just like, you know, Brad's been saying, this is just the, getting skimming the top of the uh of, 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 of the literature pile leviathan is another and it's a classic and it's a much older one uh that describes utopia and also describes the panopticon yes the guy that watches everyone and everything in the perfect society yes yes Ooh. there are a lot of parallels between There's a uh, lot of parallels uh bentham's uh panopticon and this yes. kind of superstructure of everyone living in glass houses and a, you know, a a table of listed activities that everyone is doing. You're just a cog in the wheel and society is mechanistic. You know, it's, and, and, and that brings me to another point. Another text we're going to read is this short story. This is going to be the first text we're going to read. It's called the machine stops super small. It's only 40 pages or so. This was actually written in 1909, but I, <laughs> I love this little story. I almost wish it was a full length novel, but you can tell from the title, the machine stops that the author E.M. Forster very much envisions a future in which everything is as mechanized as possible to include human beings. You're not an organism, wow. you're a mechanism, which is mm -hmm. why, you know, when we look at we, you don't need a name. You're just a number the way that we would think of a serialized part that's on some you know, appliance or piece of equipment or something that you have around your house. Yeah, and, you know, let's, what I keep thinking is so bizarre is it reminds me of the novel called One Health in which they say the leaders called the World Economic Forum say that climate change is responsible for all the woes. And so they make all the humans eat bugs and they take away their cars and they make them have digital IDs <laughs> and you no longer had cash currency, but 
central bank digital currency. I mean, seriously, this is a plot of a novel that we're in, and it's it's actually less dystopian than what you're describing, but actually, no, it's actually more dystopian because it's real, right? That's right. So, <laughs> Holy cow. Well, Bernadette, you mentioned that you've read, uh, you know, I got 1984 sitting right beside me. A lot of people have yeah. either read this or if they haven't read it, culturally, people are aware of when you use the term um, big brother, people know what that means, right? Or you use the term thought crime, which of course comes from 1984. People know what that means. Well, a lot of people are either aware of the novel or they've read it, but maybe they read it in the past and maybe they understood the story or the, the, the fictitious narrative of the novel. Yeah. But what we want to go through is actually analyze these texts, like I said earlier, and use them as an interpretive lens because even people who maybe they're just starting to wake up to what's going on in the world and maybe their worldview in 2023 is quite different than their 2019 or early 2020 worldview. But we can look at what some of these authors said 70 to 100 years ago, and then we can look at where we might be headed. And as the um, as the uh, subtitle of this course suggests, hey, let's recognize and unmask these totalitarian tendencies. Yeah, so we might be able to counter them if we can. If we collectively, you know, as a society, can recognize what's happening sooner we just we give ourselves just a little bit more decision space and sometimes yeah. um when we see what's happening right now like all the old narratives are starting to pop back up if people recognize it faster more people recognize it faster we can get out in front of this you know mm -hmm. we can have more people that can stand up and resist because they realize where this might ultimately be headed exactly. yeah and you know you mentioned the the term thought crime um, and that is so concerning because we're getting that today. There, there have been people arrested for standing like outside of abortion clinics praying right. and arrested for praying, arrested for having thoughts in a particular area, being peaceful. Um, you know, yeah, the, the predictions in there and the concerns. And I do love that put what you are going to do is put it for in context for us. I'm not somebody who really knows my history. I should know so much more. I've never really paused. In school, it kind of bored me, probably the way it was presented, you know. Um, and, and I think it's so important for us to know it. And what a great way to learn about history, about the dangerous parts of history, about different forms of government than through fiction. I, th I just think this is a great vehicle for for people to really understand. Um, so we is a new one to me. The That was Ian Forster that you... Um, uh, we is written by Yevgeny Zamyatin. Yes. There's a short story called The Machine Stops. The Machine Stops by Ian That was Forster. written by Ian yeah. Forster. Yeah, wonderful. What other um, novels will you be going over in the course? So what we're gonna do, it's gonna be 19 lessons, right? So um, we'll start, we'll have an introductory lesson or two where we'll define some terms. What is what does dystopia mean? What is totalitarianism, you know, scientific dictatorship? So we'll go through some of that. Uh, the first reading that we're going to do is going to be The Machine Stops. Um, one, because a lot of people haven't heard of this. It's the oldest. It was written in 1909. But it's also a very short text. So if people haven't read in a while, it's almost kind of a good warm up text and maybe even introduction into dystopian literature if you haven't read it before. Then we're going to move into the first full-length text, which will be 1984. Uh, this is a lot more complex than The Machine Stops. Yeah. Um, 
and I want to read that one as the first full length novel because that's the most well known. So mm -hmm. people are probably already familiar with that one. If not, they're culturally familiar with it. So let's start there. We don't necessarily need to read these in chronological order according to publication date. Um, but after 1984, we're going to read this one, which of course is Aldous, Huxley, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Mm -hmm. This was written before 1984. This was written in 1932. You know, Huxley was actually um, George Orwell's teacher, you know. Um, but as we read both of those, we'll be able to kind of compare and contrast the visions of Orwell and Huxley and look at what we're living through now and see what is kind of more in line with what Orwell warned us about and what's more in line with uh, kind of the, the brave new world um, positive future. We'll move on to Fahrenheit 451 next. Mm -hmm. So this is an American author. It is the, the latest of the works that we're going to read. This was published in 1953. So I deliberately picked older texts be, I, you know, people ask me, how come we don't read, you know, the Hunger Games, et cetera? Um, nothing wrong with that, but people are already so familiar with those. And so I wanted to go back and look at this kind of Western canon of dystopian literature that a lot of people either have read, but could probably go through again and read more deeply, or they haven't read. Mm -hmm. um, the next one we're going to read and the final novel is, of course, We. Mm -hmm. So this one is earlier than the other novels. It's not as early as The Machine Stops. You know, early 1920s is when that was written. But um, but we'll read it. We'll read it last. And then we're actually going to watch a movie. We're going to watch an old black and white dystopian movie called Metropolis. Oh, um, oh are you familiar with it? From 1927. The, That's uh, an amazing the producer, movie. Yeah, the producer is, is uh, Fritz Lang um, from Germany. And his then wife wrote a screenplay, which is also... Um, I think eerie is probably the most appropriate word. So um, that movie is, is fascinating, intriguing, terrifying, I, you know, pick your descriptor. Um, I mean, it's a hundred years old and it's a, it's a silent film. And a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with silent films. They're more like plays than they are movies because the actors kind of, they, they overact to be able to sell what they're doing because mm -hmm. you don't have the benefit of dialogue. But mm -hmm. you take this silent film that is black and white, that's a hundred years old. And then you look at the messages that are conveyed and you ask yourself, like, how, how is this a hundred years old? And yeah. yet is extremely applicable to what we're living right now in 2023. Wow. I'm showing my ignorance here. And when you say the word metropolis, I just think Superman, you know, this. <laughs> I guess this would be the, the original metropolis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but a, a fascinating movie that, again, is not on a lot of people's radar. So yeah. I want to read some novels, but we've got this short story, The Machine Stops. We've got this movie. Uh, there are a couple of essays that we're going to read, too. But mm -hmm. um in the 19 lessons, so over the course of a couple of months, mm -hmm. hopefully we can touch kind of a, a broad array of what has been written out there so that, you know, at the conclusion of the course, people have a different a different lens through which they can view the world. That's that's wonderful. I was just going to scroll a little bit again through. Um, there's a lot of description, you know, breaking down what's going to happen every week on the course page and the lessons I love the way, you know, you present everything in advance so that people really know what they're going to do. And because a lot of people doing this are they're going to be adults. They get, you know, jobs. Yeah. And so you keep them right there. 
Um, for reference materials, some of the things like Handmaid's Tale, are you going to be just discussing that? Not reading it, but referencing yeah, we, we that? We may discuss it. I think there are certain um, lessons we can draw with that. And yeah. if for no other reason, people are familiar with the TV show, even if they hadn't actually read um, yeah. Margaret Atwood's uh, novel. So mm -hmm. there, there will probably be some intertextual references that we'll make there, mm -hmm. um, even though we're not necessarily going to read it. And that was just a choice on me to prioritize some of these these older novels that have been around a little bit longer. Um, if for no other reason than to really drive home the point, hey, look at some of these texts that were written 70 to 100 years ago and how, whether you want to use the word predictive or insightful or yeah. whatever, but look how... Um, how easily they have described what we're living through right now. Exactly. And, you know, my listeners have heard me talk about this before and mention it, but I'll bring it up again in Handmaid's Tale. Um, you're, if, are you familiar? You're familiar, obviously, with the, the story in the book. I, um, yeah, I've read the, uh, I've read the novel. Yeah. And everybody, you know, has, they dress according to their station. And, um, I, I just cannot, it just blows me away every time I see the image of Biden's inauguration day. Have you seen that? I have. Where he's wearing black and his wife is wearing the certain color, the blue of the wife, same color. The young girl's wearing pink and then you've got a red and, and they're all wearing the long gowns and the coats and, and we've got even the masks because it's during COVID here. And it's one or two color matches could be like coincidence, but there's just no way I mean, what the heck is going on where they're signaling to the world what we're doing? And the very fact that the only drug that was given emergency use authorization for use for treatment of COVID was made by Gilead. I mean, it's just too freaky to me. And, you know, when you've got real life, almost like, I, I hope I can, you know, um, I won't use that expression. Anyway, just sort of giving you the Bronx cheer as it were. We're going to do this and we're going to give you some symbolism, which you're probably not going to pay attention or you're going to say it's conspiratorial. Only crazy people will say that there's a coincidence. But we've got some spooky things going on. And, and it's like the people in control have gotten so dang cocky. They think they can get away with everything. But it's three years in and I feel like American citizens have really figured out what it is to be an American citizen. They're, they're understanding probably for the first time in their lives what the Constitution truly means and that the Bill of Rights protects your God-given rights. But even if it didn't exist, those are still your rights because they don't come from government. Um, we're figuring it out. The legal system is starting to turn our way in some cases, the Missouri v. Biden that's progressing. We've got the judges really seeing the censorship and saying shame on the Biden administration. So that's encouraging. So, I mean, the more, I, the more I'm kind of talking here, the more I think how important this course is for people to understand. And I, I think one of the hardest things for people new to the whole idea of like, things are being done to you that's nefarious. They're telling you one thing, but they mean something else because they want to drive you somewhere else. People are used to that being in fiction, not their real life. But if you step back in history and you compare, okay, this novel came out and this was what's going on in the world. I think it helps you realize that, holy cow, we are being controlled now. You know, helps you really see it. 
So I, you know, I really thank you so much for for doing this course. I kind of feel like I I should have a thousand more questions here for you. So I just want you to go ahead and and yeah. leap in and talk about any themes that um, feel like you'd like to convey to the audience here. Sure. Well, I thought you just brought up, brought up a fantastic point with some of this um, symbolism, which is done blatantly in our faces. And so I, I do believe that um, symbolism or semiotics is used to uh, for a variety of reasons. One, it can be to uh, present messages, I think, to to the subconscious of the masses, because most people consciously won't be aware of it. I think that is a, a real tactic that is used. I think this is all part of a an overarching campaign of what I would call worldview warfare. And that's clearly not my term. This is a term the Germans came up with years ago. Um, but this worldview warfare that is being deliberately perpetrated against us. And I think symbolism is a, is a part of that. I think that um, ritual action is a part of that. So when you mention in a ceremony, in, in a type of ceremony, which can easily be a type of ritual where colors and symbolism and um, maybe certain statements or, actions or whatever are performed, they're almost performed in a way that looks as if it's a um, a ritual or a type of uh, liturgy. Now, Javier and I were talking a couple of days ago, and we were talking about a lot of what's going on in the world. And he mentioned that um, science or the worship of science or scientism, however you want to refer to it, has become a priesthood. And you're mm-hmm. expected to kind of bow down at the at the altar. You know, mm-hmm. um, and we would all say it's not even real science. It's no, the sod of science. But, yeah, um, yeah. But those who supposedly wield this science become the uh, you know the new priests, and we're supposed to bow down before them. And that's you know, I mean, it's very scary. It's alarming. Oh, and the other thing we have to contend with is that these are these are long range movements. So, for example, the uh, technocratic movement in the United States came out of uh, Columbia University in the 1920s and 1930s. And the technocratic movement was basically, we can understand and control the world mathematically and with precision. And, you know, all the resources, we had all the data and all the resources and all the people, how much energy, how much work they do, we can create a perfect society just as long as people are just machines. I, I think about some of the old uh, film footage that would be, you know, you go to the movie theater and this is like even some of it before my time. And you get these wonderful life made better through science and technology. And you get the new washing machine and the wife of the future will be able to say, turn on machine and it will turn on for you. And made us all just sort of just really want you know, all this modern technology and the wave of the future. I mean, it was really packaged beautifully, a lot of these ideas. You know, and I have to say, you know, Brad, that speaking with you, knowing, you know, this military career, how every day you put your life on the line to protect the Constitution and to save us, so many times we don't maybe unless you're like married to somebody or your your son or daughters in the military you i i i guess i guess it's just like you are a beautiful person you're a deep thinker you're a critical thinker and i just it i i don't even know where i'm going here with this point but i just think of all these beautiful souls like you out there to try to to protect what we truly stand for having to face internal conflicts because of the way the government 
is utilizing it, you know, and I, I don't want any, anybody harmed who really wants to protect what this nation's all about, because you represent the intelligence and the kindness and the thoughtfulness of what all those many troops out there are, you know? So um, I'm glad you're here and that you've got a voice and that you're teaching through IPAC. Um, so I kind of squirreled away there. <laughs> I'll bring us back. No, that was um, great. I mean, th thank you. You know, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I do believe that the military is under attack for a long time. The military was the, the bastion of what Americans placed a premium on. Um, we as Americans, we kind of consider ourselves rugged individualists. We place a premium on action and courage and risk taking and, um, and, 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 you know, leadership. And we believe that we were a nation birthed to war. So in a lot of ways, as Americans, there's a lot of pride that we've always taken in the military. And the military has been that bastion of what we considered to be the American ethos. So in attacking American society and the American people, one of the, one of the central pillars you have to go after is the American military. And we are seeing that in real time in Absolutely. full force. I mean, sad, but that, that is the reality of what's going on. And I believe that's why it's happening. And it's not just, it's the individuals that are being attacked through really bad policy, putting their lives in danger. Um, and it's, it's the wars they're getting into, the action they're taking. Um, and I'm not getting political here. The views expressed are those of just of me. But I mean, I was an event last night um, in Nashville with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and listened to him talk about this nation's history and how it used to be when Americans would go abroad, they were so respected. There's an American, there's an American soldier, there's American. And they were, it's like they knew that here comes somebody who's ethical, who stands for freedom, who's going to help me and help set me free and protect. You know, we had you know, the, the, a lot of the world really respected us, but then through poor, many, a lot of poor decision-making, especially the corporate capture of everything that we're doing, um, which I'm sure you know better about all the different skirmishes they tend to get us in, the respect for who America is has been rapidly deteriorating. Um, our corporations are going out and, um, poisoning the rest of the world, what's not allowed here, they will go do elsewhere. And there's just so much more to that. And, you know, we need to get our nation back to really being what our founders, what we stood for, you know? Yeah. And, you know, all of that, what you just mentioned, you know, it's being done with, uh, with American taxpayer dollars. So we're, yeah. we're footing the bill for it, even though we would never do that with our own money. We certainly would never, you know, we don't want to hurt other people, but then the government does it with our own money. I mean, it's just crazy. And a lot mm -hmm. of Americans, um, particularly those maybe of a, of, a, of a younger generation, they feel confused because they don't know whether to love their country or hate their country or whatever. So one of the distinctions that I always make, and I would say had a large degree to do with the decision that I made to leave the military was, I make a very clear distinction between the country and the government. So there's an mm -hmm. old quotation from, uh, from Mark Twain, which says, you know, patriotism is you love your country always, or you support your country always, you support the government when it deserves it, right? Oh, I love uh, that. <laughs> I, I, so I concur. So Mark Twain and I are in, you know, complete alignment with that. I am a very proud American. I'm proud to be a graduate from, uh, from West Point, you know, the U.S. Military Academy. I'm proud to have served in the Army, mm -hmm. and I have nothing against the military as an institution. Mm -hmm. I very much have a lot against 
um, the way in which this institution has been infiltrated by people that I just could no longer work for. And, and I'll be honest, uh, when I left, it was because I felt like, you know what, I think I can actually do a lot more for my country out of uniform than I could if I were to continue to be in uniform. And so now I'm out. I've been out for almost a year. Um, and I, I meet fantastic people like you. And we discuss these ways in which, for example, this course, you know, this is not just a, a book club for some nerds to get around and, uh, you know, discuss some literature. Maybe it is that to some degree, but it's <laughs> more than that. Right. Oh, wow. It, yeah. You know, there's a there's an objective behind it. Yeah. Um, as the subtitle suggests, right, we are trying to counter these totalitarian tendencies, but we can't do that unless we can recognize what they are. That's so the, the other thing that I wanted to mention when it comes to, you know, the course and why we're teaching the course and why we're going to read so much is um, the modern American struggles to read. Maybe it's just the, the way we live our lives now. You know, your smartphone's right next to you 24-7, you know, the TV's on. Um, people don't necessarily read like they used to. So one of the purposes behind this course is just where we can all encourage each other to read. I mean, we've seen the numbers. A lot of people who are college educated, they graduate from college, you know, with their bachelor's degree, and then they never read another book from cover to cover for the rest of their lives. You know, isn't that, I mean, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Same yeah. thing that Garth said on the on the on the hour earlier. He's he's an author. He said people don't read after high school either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how can we be? I mean, we just got to be honest with ourselves. Um, I would never say that those who are perpetrating these evils against us, I would never, ever absolve them of, you know, what they're doing clearly. But to some degree, we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we make ourselves easy targets? And I'll tell you, one way is through our own lack of education. We educate ourselves and we um, improve and refine our worldview, make mm-hmm. it more in line with what's actually happening. We clearly won't be such easy targets. And there are a lot of people who are really smart, but I'm talking in the collective as a society, just Americans in general. If we could all just get a little bit more educated when it comes to this stuff, whether it's the history, whether it's the literature, I know most of us weren't interested in history growing up. But if we can kind of, you know, maybe revisit that and and go back and learn some of these things, we will be um, tightening the connective tissue between ourselves, our predecessors, the founding fathers, our own ancestors, um, all those who have come before us, and that that under that greater understanding of history will bolster our sense of of personal identity and individual identity, but also our our collective identity as Americans. And I don't mean that in some, you know, socialist sense. I just mean that in the sense that, hey, we're all in this together at the end of the day. Yeah. A national identity. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is that even, sorry, I'll. I'll No, you're good. Go. (laughs) Um, So one of the other interesting aspects is that I love the fact that, you know, the modern literature that you're quoting uh, is you know so essential because it's it's a warning, but at the same time there's also biblical literature, and one of the things that came to mind was uh, when uh, Jesus Christ goes over into the into the uh, temple and overturns the uh, stalls of the money changers, and one of the key ideas that came out of that is that at the time, in order to pay off your taxes, you had to buy a specific coin from the money changers. Mm. What we have now. The implementation of a CBDC, mm-hmm. which is a particular monetary token that's going to be the only acceptable currency moving forward. 
to pay whatever we need to pay. Yeah. So even in the in the New Testament, there's also resistance literature of you have to start fighting in order to be free. Wow. Right? That's, That's exactly right. And we know that what do t- totalitarian systems do? They sever the relationship of the individual from God because go. the state has to become the God. There can't be any other superior um, force or energy or system or being that you would you know, try to align with above and beyond the state. The state has to put itself in place of God. And in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, there's a conversation in which one of the the, the alpha leader is talking to the, I can't remember the, the, the protagonist's uh, name in, in Brave New World, where he basically says, well, I believe that there is a God, but we can't tell everyone else that there is. We, <laughs> yeah. we are the end all, be all. Yeah. I would love both of you um, to touch on where you get your education. So a, a course on these novels, looking at their meaning, say given at University of Washington versus the discussions that may take place at IPAC-EDU. Um, talk about how um, the difference that you might, may find in the interpretation of the meaning of these. Yeah, well, what I would say is, um, you know, we're not constrained by what we can talk about first and foremost. So there's the the censorship, which we can evade because we can talk about what we think we're actually learning and what we need to learn from these. So that's first and foremost, is that I don't really feel like anybody's going to be looking over my shoulder other than the fact that we're going to be on the Internet. Right. But um, but I don't have anybody I don't have any academic director is going to come to me and say, well, you can't see, you can't say that you can't read that. Or if you do read that, you have to give this interpretation, et cetera. And I will also, um, in response to that, I will say, if you look at IPAC EDU, there is a cost associated with the courses, but, um, students who are interested have to understand these are very robust courses, you know? So speaking of mine, for example, it's 19 lessons. We're going to read, you know, quite a bit of material, 90 minutes a lesson. So you look at that. I mean, that's nearly 30 hours of instruction. So you're, you're the, the student is getting a lot and a lot of interaction with other individuals who maybe have slightly different interpretations or um, reach some insight, which you may not have. So there'll be a lot of value in, uh, in, in participating in these courses for sure. Yeah, and and uh, Dr. James Lansweiler has has recruited the most amazing scientists, doctors. I, Pierre Corey, I believe, has given a course. Javier Figueroa, have you ever heard of him? I believe that he is. <laughs> what is it that you're working on, Javier? So it's the vaccine course that um, um, Angelo uh, set up. Okay. Uh, basically, it's it's a brilliant course. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just reviewing the case of Andrew Wakefield. And oh, what yes. he went through, uh, just mm-hmm. because in some of the the posts that I'm setting up for for the next couple of weeks, uh, there's a number of people that are disparaging the the withdrawn and retracted papers of Peter McCullough, Jessica Rose, uh, uh, James and, and and Paul's work, as well as Mark Skidmore's work, and they're using Andy Wakefield as an example of why you need to retract papers. And again, when you start looking at the actual evidence for it. Mm-hmm. the actual facts of the case, the fact yeah. that the highest court in Britain basically said the the panel that was reviewing it is absolutely 100% wrong. Yeah. All of a sudden you start seeing that there are narratives that are being pushed constantly mm-hmm. to get people not to look. And again, yeah. anti-vax is a thought terminating cliche. 
It means <laughs> yeah. don't look there. Yes. That's they, it. That's, that's fantastic that you're you're doing that. I worked with Andre years ago and he was first formulating yeah. uh, vaccine course. And it's so wonderful to, to see it still going on and being taught at IPAC. This is fantastic. Yeah. We've only got probably now about two minutes left. And um, so Brad, um, do you have anywhere where people, we've got you teaching at IPAC EDU. Do you have sure. a website or anywhere people can follow you? Have a yeah, yeah there are a couple of places people can find me. You can find me on Twitter, just uh, my name. So at Brad Miller, one zero one zero. I write a fair amount on Substack. Again, you can find me on Substack. It's just my name, bradmiller10.substack.com. I also just started a YouTube channel. So, you know, youtube.com slash at bradmiller10. So those would be the three easiest places to find me. Um, and, and yeah, I'll continue to write, probably make some more videos. And of course, you can find me on IPAC EDU in uh, a couple of weeks when we start the course. That is so wonderful. And and Javier, remind people where they can find you too and some of your great writing. Javier Figueroa at Substack uh, and also the evidence base. It's all one and the same. Uh, okay. and again, uh, I'm now now that uh, now that I've heard more about the course, I'm I'm going to join the course. Oh, the, wonderful! It sounds, it sounds amazing. And when does your course start? The the vaccine course. The vaccine course, I'm still uh, talking with uh, with uh, um, uh, Jack about it. So it's okay. going to start in September. Okay. Uh, so we'll get that we'll get that up and running as well. But I'm I'm really looking forward to your course, Brad. Yeah, it Thank sounds you. fabulous. If I can squeeze it in, I will. So Brad Miller, a pleasure and honor to meet you, sir. Um, thank you for for coming on the show. And Javier, always a, a pleasure to have you co-hosting. It was great two hours of conversation. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and TV. We will be back next week. Take care. Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PGI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PGI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit PGI. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.